friends, brothers and sisters in recovery, fellow mental health champions, and welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Heimerman, and I am not a licensed healthcare professional, not a counselor, not a unicorn. No, I'm a guy with 861 days of sobriety, and I'm a guy with the gumption to put his story out there. Like I said, I'm not a unicorn. However, I have one on the podcast. This unicorn goes by the name of Denise Williams. Denise is a social worker who checks so very many boxes that are just aching to be checked in the field of social work. She is a suicide survivor. She is queer pangender and she is mixed race. Her mother's from Thailand. So she checks so many boxes as she put it, there is a dearth of people working in her profession that are from all those various communities. So glad that Denise joined us for an episode of 40,000 Steps Radio. And I'm so grateful that you're here with us. I'm looking out the window, and boy, it's a beautiful day for us to get our 40,000 steps in. So what do you say? Should we get it? Yeah, let's get it. gang first and foremost you're about to hear the story of denise williams it's a story of her surviving suicide of her journey of finding herself and her place in this world and a story of her using that and using her experiences to guide people through this world as a social worker and here's the beautiful things it's a story that's still being written you know there's a semicolon there which those of us in the recovery community love that semicolon because it means that it isn't a period. The story is still being written. Now, you're also about to hear a person who has no idea what in the bloody hell he's doing. And that person is me. Because you're going to hear me stammer. You're going to hear me try to find the words as... <laughs> you can even hear me stammering right now. As I ask her about her gender identity and her journey with her sexuality and how she identifies. And I'm stammering because... I'm very ignorant in this area. And she urged me not to say I'm ignorant, but it's true. There's so much stuff that I don't know. And I like to have all the answers. But I came away from this this conversation smiling so huge because I realized that this conversation really embodies what happens when we step outside of our comfort zone. We swallow our pride and we truly seek understanding and enlightenment. Now, I'm from northeastern Wisconsin. And as I confess... To Denise, I I grew up a homophobe. I, you know, it was very much a, a product of my environment. You know, but ultimately, it's our choice who we're going to be. And I decided pretty early on that, that those those feelings were unsettling. It didn't feel like me, so I pushed back against those feelings in that environment. And here, let's drop in another semicolon because uh, just because. I became educated and became more compassionate, you know, to the LGBTQIA plus community. It doesn't mean that I have even just a fraction of the answers or the understanding that I need that there's a semicolon. It's an ongoing process. Look, I still have homophobic tendencies. I'm not magically healed. 
you know, the same way that I have, I have racist tendencies as well. And to lie to myself, to deny myself the opportunity to grow and keep getting better. I mean, why would we limit ourselves, right? What good does that do? How are we bettering society if we decide, <laughs> if we decide that we're fixed and we don't have any learning to do? And just because I have misconceptions and I, and I, and I have these deeply ingrained biases doesn't make me a bad person. It just, it makes me a flawed person and that's okay. I know that as a recovering alcoholic, it's okay to be a flawed person. It's actually quite beautiful as long as we're willing to do the work. Because I mean, how cool is that, that we have not reached our potential? We can be better people. To me, that's pretty rad. There's another person in this conversation who's still figuring things out too. You know, Denise doesn't have all the answers. Because here's the deal. <laughs> Denise is not the champion of all things LGBTQIA. She is part of that spectrum the same way that I am part of the gender identity spectrum. But as she points out, and this, this kind of blew my mind, that there is biphobia within the LGBTQIA community. I went into this conversation feeling like I'm standing on this side of a divide. And how much of a fallacy is that? That I went into it sort of with this imposter syndrome of, yes, I, I, I long to be an ally and I long to have greater understanding, but I'm still not, I'm not part of that tribe. So I'm on the outside looking in. And I mean, look at what that feeds into. That feeds into this culture of us and them. So this was neat. This was so heartening for me to go into a conversation so worried about not having all the answers and to come out on the other side feeling like I had grown and that I told Denise afterward, I was like, I cannot wait to talk to you on the phone or via video, not within the podcast, so I can keep learning. I want to know more. I want to keep growing. You know, here's another fallacy is that because I'm a recovering alcoholic about two and a half years sober, that people don't understand it who haven't been through it. But we've all been affected by addiction, right? Now, for those who are troubled and feel confused, I have good news. I have a partner of the podcast who can help you figure out the right course of action to get help and to beat addiction. It's DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers in Northern Illinois. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email duibhs at gmail.com. All right, are you ready to hear me stammer? 
Because I thought about after this conversation, you know, my knee jerk was like, oh man, I'm going to have so much cleaning up to do of this conversation. But I did very, very little post-production because there's even a point where Denise, you know, says that she wanted to redact a statement because she caught herself, you know, saying something that's, that's non-productive. And we both came to the conclusion that, that I was going to do very little editing with this so that you can hear that I sure as hell don't have the answers and that Denise is constantly learning and growing as well. All right. All right. Y'all ready? I can't wait for you to hear this. It's my conversation with who I now consider a very dear friend, Denise Williams. Hey, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm almost there. I just realized I don't have my headphones plugged in. Just a sec. Oh, no worries. Oh, oh my gosh, we're here. <laughs> Hi, hectic morning. Oh my gosh. And I just got rained on just for good measure. So, but I think we're good. I, I just plugged in a lamp because I'm not going to complain. This is the first time we've had rain here in like two months. Wow. I know. That's insane. I said to my wife yesterday, I was like, you remember rain? (laughs) (laughs) What's rain? I haven't seen it forever. Where do you guys live? I don't remember. We're in DeKalb, Illinois, so just west of Chicago. Okay. Yeah. We have had lots of rain since I've moved to North Carolina, which I did not know was a thing. (laughs) Well, now, uh, you're originally from... Well, so I was born in Virginia Beach. I never know how to answer that question, but I lived in Baltimore for over, like Baltimore City for over eight years, and then I was in that area. So I guess it depends on (laughs) how you define that. (laughs) Now, geography has never been my thing. How far of a drive would it be from Baltimore to to North Carolina where you're going to school? Um, It took about, I think, like five and a half hours. So it's not too far. I just, I can't imagine that it's, that it's the, boy, this is a rough term to use, but it can't be that great of a climate change from, from one, from one city to the next, right? It's, it's been, it's different in a good way, I think. Um, it's definitely a lot more humid. There are way more mosquitoes and apparently I moved here during really bad mosquito season. So that was just mm. my luck, but <laughs> I like it so far. Yeah. You guys have cicadas out there? So no, we had a ton of cicadas um, in Maryland, but moving down here, I don't think they had the big cicada like two month storm that we had up north. Yeah, it's, it's been a riot here. I just saw Sandy walk by. I've been so oh, excited yes. to meet both of you. <laughs> yes, she is uh, chewing bones on the bed. She makes her Zoom appearances sometimes when we have meetings and stuff. So <laughs> Nice. I'm going to dare to do this. Oh. That is my Black Lab Dexter. Hi, Dexter. Our geriatric old man who hangs out with me in here because if I don't lock him in here, our husky will absolutely terrorize him. Oh, he's very cute. (laughs) Oh, he's he's the guy. He was, you know, he was our practice child before we went and had humans. (laughs) So, so he was very helpful with that. So, hey, I'm so glad that I'm, I'm so glad to meet you. This is cool. You know, tell me about, you know, you're you're doing your doctorate. Are you doing that in, in, a, in psychology or what, what exactly is the degree? So, yeah, I just um, started my social work Ph.D. program at UNC Chapel Hill. So it's 
I don't know. Social work, I feel like, is one of those professions is like a little bit of everything. So people are usually like, well, what is social work? Um, so it's a little bit of psychology, sociology. I feel like there's a lot of public health involved. It kind of depends on which route you go, macro or clinical. But then there's, you know, the social justice lens, which I feel like really separates us as as a profession. So. Well, and you've worked, you've worked a lot in elementary on that level, right? Elementary schools at that age? Yeah. So I, um, let's see, I finished my MSW about, it's been over six years now. So I was, for the past about three years, I was working in an elementary school in Baltimore. Before that, I was doing school-based therapy. And then before that, I was in child welfare. So I've done a little bit of, a little bit of everything in social work, I feel like, in my short time. I just think that when we're talking about social work and we're talking about our, our youngest, our youth, I mean, talk about an opportunity. I mean, you know, you mentioned, you know, social issues, socioeconomic, you know, cultural issues to be able to make inroads with that, that education that uh, here's one of my soapboxes is it's not enough to be tolerant. <laughs> I hate the word tolerant where, where you're there, you know, talking about you know, a level playing field and equity, mm-hmm. you know, equity and equality are a couple of words that are often interchanged unfairly. I guess talk to me about the opportunity to connect with young people and create that education and to also create this safe space where there could be dialogue and, you know, teaching kids that it's okay to not be okay. I feel like I'm throwing like every buzzword (laughs) in the ethos at the wall right now, but it's, it's gotta be cool to connect with youngsters and knowing that you can have that lasting effect. Absolutely. And I feel like, I mean, this is a very relevant topic of conversation, right? Because we have so much going on in the world and just looking at just the United States where we are um, with everything that's going on with critical race theory and how there's two different sides, right, of trying to push teaching children how to have these conversations about differences and systematic injustices and oppression. And then there's another side that says, no, that's uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about that. And I think there's a big misconception of what what that actually means, right? What is critical race theory? Um, mm, but mm-hmm. I, I know that in my work at the school-based level, we focused a lot on equity, right? It's not just about equality, which is leveling the playing field for everybody, and we're all in the same field, but really looking at an individual's needs, right? What what levels of oppression or systematic racism, things like that, what is affecting them and how can we help them to, it's not about leveling the playing field, but it's really about figuring out what people need differently to kind of give us all the same opportunities, if that makes sense. It's, it's a little bit different, but it's- Oh, it, oh, it completely yeah. does. I mean, when we talk about critical race theory, you know, <laughs> This drives me nuts because we are talking about systemic issues and centuries of building in barriers and obstacles for people to have equal opportunities. How do you personally deal with the fact that people don't understand that and that they rail against it and that they deny, you know, facts? And how do you handle that personally? Well, it's it's hard, right? I think they're... So you asked about it personally. So as as a social worker in my social work role, I would handle this very differently, right? But I think about in my personal life, um, it's it's kind of hard to separate, I guess, my personal life from my identity as a social worker because I feel like there are values that 
really conjoin the two, right? But when I think about my personal life, I mean, I've had family members that I unfortunately have had to just kind of decide not to engage with um, just because we we see things differently. And I I won't name any names, <laughs> but I, I, I think especially with everything that happened with Trump's election and, you know, the different uprisings and things that have happened within the past just couple of years and everything really coming to head. Uh, for my own mental well-being, I've kind of had to decide, well, is this somebody in my life who's willing to have these conversations and be open about it? Because there's always two sides to a story, but there's always multiple other sides to the story, right? It's not just um, about my view and their view, but about other people's stories that we have to consider. It's just not that black and white. No, it's not. I'm wearing one of my favorite shirts. I got this at Pitchfork last weekend. It is, you know, King Kong and Godzilla hugging it out. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I I know. I saw it. I was like, I absolutely need that. Because we have this, you know, instinctive, like, reflex to to divide into two camps. And it's it's insanity to where we we can't have a, a civil discussion about things. Like, nobody wants to be educated anymore. And it, it, this might, I might sound like the old man yelling at the clouds, but it's like if, if, if we didn't have sort of the accelerants like social media, maybe we still could have more of a civil discussion. So in your, in your personal world, though, there, there are some situations where you kind of have to chalk it up as a loss. Mm-hmm. Are there any ways that you have had a success in terms of meeting somebody who, who is personal to you? a family member, a friend, but sort of meeting them on their level and making yourself more accessible so you guys can have a, uh, a productive discussion about some of this stuff. Absolutely. And that's kind of what I was trying to speak to, right? I think there are some people that are just very staunch in their beliefs and they don't really want to have a conversation. And that's that's okay, right? That's, that's you. That can change over time. We're all at different places in our lives and our journey of understanding and really looking into ourselves and looking at our views and what we were taught, right? And I think on the flip side, there are people that are a little bit more open. So I think you kind of have to figure out, well, is this somebody who I will expend my emotional energy and time in and kind of like talking about things? Or is this someone who I know just wants to argue for the sake of arguing? So I think um, I think about people in my life that have been kind of open to talking about things. Um, I had a really good coworker and friend of mine, actually, who is a very honest and open person, and I am too, and I feel like we could have those tough conversations. Um, She was like, she didn't really understand what white privilege is. And she was was like, Denise, what is this thing? Like, they're talking about it at the trainings that I was going to, right? Um, And I think her initial gut reaction was to be, like, upset about it, right? We hear privilege and we think, well, I don't come from privilege, but we were kind of able to talk about, well, it doesn't mean that you haven't had struggle in your life. It just means that race, like, you know, your presentation, how you look hasn't affected your opportunities in life or how people negatively perceive you, if that makes sense. So we're able to talk about that. It does. Uh, You know, I'm getting chills right now because I've, we've gotten so accustomed to people just being so adversarial that I just want I, I, I want you to tell, this is a coworker of yours, right? Yeah, we work together and we're really good friends. <laughs> Would you tell this individual that I admire them? Because like you said, there was that visceral reaction or that, that immediate like 
the reflex to push back. But she did what we all need to do. And she said, please help me explain this. I hear that and I get giddy and I get hopeful. (laughs) I get hopeful for progress when I hear that. Absolutely. And like both people have to be open, right? And I think the person who's doing the learning has to be willing to be like, well, this is how I'm understanding this concept and I'm getting upset about it. What is that about? What can I learn more about? Do I even understand what this means? Because I think there's just a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings that are happening. One of these, uh, you know, subjects, you know, that's, that's just one of the many, many, many issues within all of this is I, I, I've been excited to talk to you about the LGBTQIA plus community in that, because I, I, I keep hearing both sides of the coin with this. I hear sometimes that it's become easier to be from that community. I hear that it's harder. And I have to think that there's kind of a catch 22 going on in that there is so much more awareness and that there is <laughs> acceptance and tolerance. Gosh, I hate it. I, <laughs> it seriously makes my stomach turn. But I mean, from your perspective, there's a lot more awareness, but I have to assume that there's there's also because of that awareness and that and that people are you know that that it's become an issue at the forefront that there's also more opposition. Can you help me like understand how how that you know how that actually? You know, how do I phrase the question? What is what is actually going on? It, has it become easier to be a, a member of the gay community? when uh, when there is more awareness but also i i have to think that there's also a lot more just unfounded vitriol out there well i think it kind of depends it depends on a lot right it's i will never give you a black and white answer there's always it's always more complicated right so (laughs) i have to kind of explain that um i think the the community as a whole right there's so many different identities in there and everybody has their own different experience and i think that sexual orientation and gender identity, which are two separate things, um, can either, you know, you either have, are a little bit more oppressed or maybe you have a little bit more privilege, right? So I, as a cisgender woman, would not experience as much, I guess, discrimination and stigma than if I were a transgender woman, if that makes sense. So within the community, if you look at mental health disparities, um, accessibility to treatment, even in medical treatment, right? There are different, there are different disparities within that, right? Some of us are have more accessibility. Some of us have less accessibility. So there's a lot of nuances, I think, within the community. Uh, but then you also have to consider, like, I was born in the '90s, so the the historical context, right? In the '90s, queer theory came out. Um, there was a lot more push to kind of level out the rights and playing field of the LGBTQ plus community. So I think in my lifetime, they have made some strides, right, when we think about marriage equality and things like that. But there's also been a lot of work that was done before that. And I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I just have to think that we're not just because there's more awareness and there there might be a little bit more compassion. It's not like it's not like fear has been ruled out of this. You know, you know what I mean? I, I think that there's, again, people get into that like black and white mindset that just because we're talking about it more, that, that all of a sudden the problem is fixed. Do you, do no, you, know, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> That's never the case for any of our social justice issues, right? Um, yeah. 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 Can you tell me a little bit about your journey 
in, in terms of you know you know growing up and you know us having just met and me only sort of having this this surface level like familiarity with your story can you tell me about your your journey a little bit sure um i guess it depends are you talking about my like how I came into my queer identity, or are we talking about mental health? It's, it kind of depends. How do you want to frame that question? All, all of it, yes. But how about your your gender identity? Sure. Um, let me see. Well, I I honestly didn't. I could call it coming out of the closet. I didn't come out of the closet to everybody um, until I think I was twenty three. I knew that I was different growing up. I was attracted to both males and females, right? So I currently identify as um, queer pansexual. So pansexual just means that um, gender identity doesn't matter to me, right? So it's more about the person. We say parts, people over parts. I love that. Parts not part. Hearts not parts. I was trying to think. Hearts not parts. <laughs> and look, I want to. I want to point something out here that, like, I really, really appreciate this opportunity to learn because I do live in like such a silo a lot of the time. Like I can read, you know, books to my kids about families that have two dads and have two moms. To me, this is absolutely thrilling that, you know, I'm not only hearing terminology from you, but you're breaking it down for me. <laughs> it's, it, it's humbling. So I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, you know, I, this, this is neat. Thank you. And I, I appreciate the opportunity. And I, I always have to say, I, you know, obviously I don't represent everyone in the queer community and each person's experience and definitions for themselves are different. But for me, that is what that means. Um, and so I think there's also just, you know, I, I, it took me a while to realize that, right? So I, at first I identified as bisexual. Um, and there's actually a lot of, I don't know how you say it. There is a lot of, there's biphobia, even within the queer community, right? So I use queer as an umbrella, meaning the LGBTQAI to us, all, all of that, right? So there's biphobia. But for me, the, I guess the identity of bisexual also just didn't work because it, it, sexuality for me has kind of changed over time, right? Who I was attracted to, who I felt drawn to. But the, I didn't come out in high school because I think there was a lot of stigma that I felt from not just my peers, there's, but from my family, a lot of internalized homophobia just from society. Like I didn't grow up really knowing anybody in the queer community, which was you know, it made it hard for me to have the words to describe what I was going through. And I, I thought there was something wrong with me and it just didn't feel safe. Um, whether that, like people didn't necessarily say that to me, right? But in, I didn't feel safe coming out until I was a little bit older, um, you know, out of my mom's house, kind of just figuring out who I am. I feel like that's a, what you're doing in college too, right? Figuring out who you are and where you belong and what kind of fits to describe who you are. You know, there's there's something really fascinating within there. You know, you said that there's biphobia even within the, the queer mm-hmm. community. And, and again, that, that like speaks to the fact that like we're all on a spectrum. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like I, I see this. This is where where a lot of my uh, my ignorance comes from is I grew up in northeastern Wisconsin. And I think I think back on my upbringing and frankly, you know, I'm, I'm saying this because this is a safe place and because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a person who comes from who, who appreciates compassion in that I had a, a, whether I was conscious or not, like I was homophobic growing up mm-hmm. because I was, a, you know, I, that was my environment. And 
you know, I pushed back against it as well, you know, but, but by and large, like that, that was, that was the world that I was living in and it never sat right. It always felt very uncomfortable, but also, you know, it's kind of like the same thing with, you know, when I finally like broke down and began drinking in order to be part of like that culture and that club, it was just like, eventually it's like you, you, and this isn't justifying at all, but there's, there's a certain amount of like buckling under the pressure of the people around Mm -hmm. you in order to, you know, kind of put on airs and, and just try to survive. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's, it's, it, I mean, it's ugly. And this is, I mean, this is, I've been dealing with this for 20 years, trying to become a more compassionate person and, and address, uh, you know, some of my, some of my shortcomings is another term <laughs> we like to use in the recovery community. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in the, in the past year and a half, especially it's, it, there's just been these opportunities to just sit down and do some honest discovery with mm-hmm. myself. How, how comforting is it to you knowing that, you know, we ignorant folks are doing that right now? I don't know that I would call you ignorant, <laughs> but by definition, yeah, <laughs> I see what you mean. But no, I, I am really thankful that people are having these conversations, you know, the people that are willing and that they're willing to learn more because I think, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I think that a lot of the fear a lot of the phobia, all of that comes from misunderstandings and just not knowing enough, right? There's a fear of the unknown. So if we talk about it, if we define things, if we get to put faces to, you know, to these stories, right? Like, I mean, I know a lot of people who maybe don't know trans people, right? But a lot of my best friends are trans. And so by meeting them and hearing their stories, I really was able to learn a lot more about the experience. And I think that that helps people become more compassionate and empathic and care about what's happening to people, if that makes sense. Oh, it sure does. And and I hope I'm making sense too, because there, I think that there's a difference between admiring somebody uh, for for their personal beliefs and 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 the things that make them them, I think there's a, a difference between admiring them for that for their bravery, and actually acknowledging who they are. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, do you know what I mean? And really truly appreciating them, like I I also like up until recently haven't been around you know that many folks from the transgender community, so. As much as I admire it, and I love RuPaul's, you know, Drag Race, it's 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 amazing the things that I'm seeing. It's to me, it's incredibly encouraging. But when I'm like actually engaged in a conversation with 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 somebody who, who's transgender, to me, it's kind of that moment of like, oh my god, I've never been here before. Mm-hmm. This is, and and I'm like, why why should this be any different than if I was talking? you know, with, 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 with anybody from, from like my inner circle, you know, it's, it's just, it's this ongoing exploration. People are people are people, (laughs) (laughs) but also it is important. You know, I, I think about when I said that, I just thought about how we talk about color blindness. Right. And I think that yes, people are people and we we should still acknowledge the differences, but we shouldn't let those differences change how we interact with them in terms of people just being people. I don't know. I'm throwing a lot of words out there and I don't know if they're making sense. <laughs> <But> <laughs> well, you know what? 
I think it's okay that they don't because this is such complicated stuff. Absolutely. But, I mean, you and I are, you know, same team working toward, you know, the end game of, of making people just care about each other more mm-hmm. and in trying to make the world a more compassionate place. Like, I get so thrilled about the fact that, that I, I don't know, like, I've already alluded to it, like, when you talk about people from your family and stuff who are more conservative, for me, it's like I am the absolute outlier. Like mm-hmm. everybody from my past, you know, where I grew up, family, my friends back then, all conservative. And, you know, I also mentioned it before that drinking was such a huge part of the culture that I grew up in. And I'm so eternally grateful that after I sunk into alcoholism that I was able to get back on track and get this life that I've always wanted. And I did it through a partner of the podcast, Gateway Foundation in Aurora, Illinois. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free, confidential consultation, or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. So you uh, so you came out when you were 23 and you were in college, is that right? Yeah, I was, I was out to a couple of really good friends before that, and it was more of like, hey, I know that I'm different and I am trying to figure out how. Um, I told one of my best friends that I thought I was bisexual. Maybe. I was like, I'm either gay or bisexual. I don't really know. There's a lot going on. I was like 18, right? Nobody knows who they are at the age of 18. And I remember he said to me, no, you are not. Um, Oh. So that was really terrible. And we didn't talk for years after that. What was his position? Why not? I don't know. He didn't really tell me. Um, I think in retrospect, I think he had his own homophobic views, right? And then I also, he had feelings for me. And so I think there was a lot going on there. Um, But it was pretty terrible because when I came out later in my 20s, we hadn't spoken since I was 18. And I got a call from him out of the blue. And it he was like, I so I heard you're gay now, which was even more invalidating, right? It's not like it's a choice. Um, so I had some good experiences, some really terrible experiences in the free, like, coming out but well how did that end up playing out did, did this phone call last somewhere between two and three minutes and and you chalk it up as as a lost cause or how did that conversation proceed I think I told him how I felt and I was like you know it's it's not a choice and I felt invalidated when I came out to you before and you told me no you're not um and I think that it's really disrespectful I don't know if I use those words, right? <laughs> I remember, like, I, I basically told him that it wasn't cool that he was calling me out of the blue to continue to, like, invalidate 
me and my experience. And then it's not a choice, but it's also none of his business because he wasn't even in my life for so long. Well, you know, what about with your family? You know, when, when you came out, how did that go? Oh, well, I have one. I just won't say who they were, but I have one family member in particular who was always like one of my champions who was very critical and me growing up and just kind of like surviving the tough adolescent years and all the traumas that come with it. They did not respond well. Um, and they actually sent me like CD-ROMs on, um, well, they called me disgusting. They said a lot of really terrible things to me when I, when I said that I was dating a woman. Um, and they sent me like CD-ROMs that were almost like conversion therapy. I don't know if you want me to go into that, but it was, it was like conversion therapy tape. So it was like, you're disgusting, you're terrible, but don't worry, um, you can be saved and here's how. So it was very problematic for a lot of different reasons. I'm so sorry. Yeah. But on the flip side, I also had some family members who were like, yeah, we kind of knew (laughs) you were different growing up and we had a feeling, but like, thanks for telling us that it was just like a that's cool. We love you no matter what thing. So, well, that's rad. <laughs> yeah, it kind of went along the spectrum, right? There are some people <laughs> who were like, oh, you're awful. And other people were like, you were fabulous before and you're still fabulous. So that's, that's awesome. I mean, but how, so how do you deal with, you know, the, the uber evangelicals though? I, I think about, you know, the, the crowd that voted, that votes straight ticket mm-hmm. because they have their one issue. Yeah that they bank their belief systems on. But this is this is different. Like like this is like not seeing you as as a person. Uh, how how do you how do you deal with that? I mean that's that's an extreme point of view. I think it kind of depends, right? I go through a lot of different emotions and I get angry and I get upset and I feel like I want to scream into the void. And then I say, "Well, what's the point?" right? Like it kind of goes back to is somebody willing to like sit down and talk about things? Um, am I willing to sit, like, do I feel well enough to have this conversation with people who seem to hate me so much just for one part of my identity? Or um, do I need to protect myself and my energy? Um, and I think this is where chosen family has been really important for me. You know, like my family in the queer community who aren't necessarily blood related, but who are very much like family in all other meanings of the word if that makes sense. It does. And I mean, we come back again to, the, like you said, the concept of you know, like, don't waste energy, mm-hmm. you know, spend your energy wisely. I love the way that you put that. When did that occur to you? Because I was very late to that party. Like I'm 42 and it was just a couple of years ago where I realized I only have so much bandwidth. Yeah. I only have so much energy to spend and I'm getting worn out by spending it poorly. Mm-hmm. When did that light bulb go on for you? Oh my gosh. I feel like... <laughs> It wasn't until I think later in grad school when I'm like in family therapy and trying to validate my clients and teach them about healthy boundaries. And then it dawned on me, (laughs) I'm teaching these people all of these important concepts about healthy relationships and pretend like protecting your energy and your mental health. Like I should probably be living what I'm preaching. Right. So, and it's really hard because I've always been such a people pleaser. um, And I think that I had to kind of reframe it right as like, boundaries aren't just important for me as an individual like other people also need to learn about boundaries so probably in my like later 20s i i was late in coming to it because <laughs> so, i'm only 31 now so it's been 
a few. You years. know what was cool, and, and I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but you know, I yeah, recovering people pleaser as well, like notorious. And my my guest on on the previous episode of the podcast, Kimmy Hill. It was, <laughs> I don't remember even how it came up in conversation, but I asked her, I was like, all right, so are you a people pleaser? And she was like, absolutely not. She was like, a, she was, she was like, I'm a fuck you. This is the way it is kind of person. And I was like, please teach me. Yeah. Because I mean, we, you know, we, we gravitate toward a certain sort of person mm-hmm. and Kimmy is a vibrant soul huge champion of all the sort of things that you and I are a champion of, but totally not a people pleaser. And to me, that was so cool. It was like, oh my God, there's another, like, there's another point (laughs) on the spectrum. Like the spectrum doesn't go like this either. It's three dimensional. So that was, that was cool. Right. And it probably depends on the person, right? If it's somebody I don't really care about, I'm like, well, I don't care if you like me or not. But then if it's somebody that I love and care about, yeah. It's interesting. Oh, see, now you need to teach me how to do that because I'm terrified of like not pleasing anybody. Like there was a point early in the pandemic where I was doing what I think a lot of us did. And I was taking maybe not daily, but regularly to social media to just mm. bleh, to just put it all out there. And I would like nervously go back to my post mm-hmm. and be like, okay, what, you know, which, you know, which, which person from the other side of the aisle, you know, took, oh, took issue yeah. with this. So I'm definitely in the camp where it's like, I'm, I'm terrified of upsetting anybody, but always working on that. Right. I feel like it, one of my mentors, actually, I was speaking with her yesterday. I've known her since undergrad and she helped me get into the P. She's been wonderful. Dr. Sharon Jones Eversley. I would want to give her a shout out. But she she told me and she's been telling me it's really important that we don't change who we are, right? Like no matter where we are, we need to be who we are and try not to change to please other people because inevitably we won't recognize ourselves and we can never please everybody. So as long as we stick to what's really important to us, that is critical. So I feel like I always kind of like have her in the back of my mind when I'm worried about what people are thinking or like you, if I posted something that somebody might get mad about, like, okay, and what, you know, we're making people uncomfortable so that we have these important conversations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's where growth happens is a little bit outside of your comfort zone. And then you take another little step Absolutely. and another little step. You know, I just kind of had an epiphany just now in that as a people pleaser, like we talked about earlier, you know, the way that I would sort of contort my instincts to fit into a lot of the molds of where I grew up. It was like, as soon as I stopped like trying to fit in with other people's ideologies, when I actually started to say, you know, you know, I'm going to go over there now. Or if I actually, you know, had the bravery to, to, to fight back against, Mm -hmm. you know, hate and bigotry and stuff like that. I started feeling a lot better. You know, I, you start sleeping better at night. You know what I mean? So that's, that's absolutely, that's the ultimate case for stopping, you know, pleasing people. So I feel that I think that's kind of where I am too. Like that's the mindset I've used with my family. Right. Cause especially with them, it can be really hard. And I was like, you know, I, I struggled really hard to kind of be like, you know, I can't, talk to them right now this is too much but I think that you're right and when it comes to issues that we really feel important about it's easier to to do that you know one uh 
I, I don't know how much this, oh, well, I have my suspicions about how much this dovetails with everything we've been talking about, but you know, can we talk about your uh, mental health journey and kind of shift gears? Like, I, I believe what I had seen is like your diagnosis is, is major depressive disorder. Is that right? Yes. When did that come to be? For me, it came to be like 30 years ago, only like mm-hmm. I first realized that I, I only first came to sort of understand it about 10 years ago. What, what was your journey like there? Yeah, so I'm 31 now. I think that I was officially diagnosed when I was 10 after my brother died by suicide. Um, so that was, well, I don't actually know if they diagnosed me. It's after my brother died, um, I didn't really want to see a therapist because my first session was with the same therapist that he had and it was like an old white guy and he yelled at me and kicked me out of his office (laughs) why i mean you know you're 10 years old your brother just died your parents are splitting up i didn't want to talk about it and so i think he got frustrated which is not ethically (laughs) what therapists should do i'm a therapist now i can say that but it's the Um, way he's always done it (laughs) it seems like it i was like he in retrospect i I was like, he should probably have retired. But so I don't know. I don't think they diagnosed me at that time. And actually, I didn't know until probably um, my teenage years when I inevitably was hospitalized for major depressive disorder. And I feel like that's when I really had an aha moment because it's like, you know, you get the diagnosis and they kind of explain it to you and it it makes sense. It's like simultaneously terrifying and validating, right? Right. It's like, oh, all of these years, like, this has been why I feel this way. I'm not, I'm not quote unquote crazy. There are other people that have this. There's like a word for it. Yeah. Um, Because I never had the words for it. I just had the really strong, terrible emotions inside of me. And I didn't know how to deal with them as a kid. You know, a lot of the folks who I've chatted with on here, they were hospitalized and perhaps the aftercare wasn't wasn't what it was supposed mm-hmm. to be or because it's not like you know you don't just get out of the hospital or get out of rehab and you know you're you're fixed it's a lifelong journey mm-hmm. like, like in my case you know a couple of weeks after i got out of rehab i relapsed yeah and so i a, a few people who i've had on the podcast who you know ended up being hospitalized it, it, it you know it, it happened subsequent times and yeah. was that the case for you So no, it wasn't. Um, And I think it was a little bit different only because like I was really good at hiding how much pain I was in. Mm. And like kind of like I denied suicidal ideation from the age of probably 10 to 17. 17 is when I was hospitalized. Oh my goodness. And I think it was kind of that conflicting experience of being like a survivor of suicide loss, right? Like my brother died um, and I knew what it was like to lose somebody by suicide, but I also knew what it was like to be experiencing suicidal ideation and like why my brother did what he did. Right. It was so, I feel like, I mean, I didn't want to leave my mom. So there was that feeling of guilt that kind of made me hide everything. Um, And so she knew something was wrong. She tried to get me help, but I was really resistant and I just wouldn't talk to therapists. I would say, no, I don't have that because I was worried they would hospitalize me. So for those seven years, I was, you know, I wasn't doing okay, but I wasn't hospitalized until I was 17. And finally was just like, I can't do this anymore. There's there's, there's two things that I'm noticing here that are similar, but also I have to assume that they're polar opposite in that when you got your major depressive disorder diagnosis, 
there is that comfort and validation and just hope that comes with, oh my gosh, they have a name for this. Mm-hmm. They have a treatment for this. Like there, there's a road to getting better and, and living my, my full life. Now with, you know, your brother committing suicide and with you wrestling with suicidal ideations there, you know what that is too, because you've seen your brother suffer through it and you've seen how that story ended. Mm-hmm. So there you also identify with it. And you're like, I know what that is, but, I, but I'm terrified of it, right? Yeah, I don't want to put somebody else through the same thing. And I don't want to be that person. But since we're having these conversations about education, we try not to use the phrase committing suicide. Mm, thank you. Yes. And I, I learned that. I mean, I, as a clinician, I was using that for so long and it never really felt right. But we try to say died by suicide or something just because of the negative combination of committing. So Yep. I, I have been told six ways from Sunday to stop saying that. And it is so ingrained in me. It's, it's insane. Right? It's not just you. Even people in the mental health profession still use it. So we're trying to retrain our brain and that is okay. I appreciate you pointing that out. If, if, if I hear it two or 10 more times, I think I'm going to have it. (laughs) Well, thank you for being open to that. Of course. Okay. So, so you get, you know, your, your diagnosis at age 17 and, uh, how, how do things progress from there in, in terms of your career choice? Did you always want to work in the field that you're going into or, or was that an aha moment for you? I knew that I wanted to help people. We actually had a social worker, I think they were from CPS, like now that I know the system. So Child Protective Services, I think, had to come in after Jeffrey died by suicide just to make sure things were okay, to help my mom, that type of thing. So I was actually introduced to a social worker when I was 10 after he died. Um, And so I knew that I wanted to help people. And then when I went to college, I like looked into social work and I was like, oh, this is perfect. I can be a therapist if I want to. It was kind of funny. Like I hated talking to therapists, did not want to do it when I was a teenager, but like, (laughs) I want to become one of them. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) Isn't there a matter of you, this stuffy old white guy kicked you out of his office and you're like, I know how to not do this. We need to do better. I want to do better than that. Um, So I feel like for me, it just kind of made sense. Um, And so, and I, I feel like my experiences kind of helped me, you know, like, oh, I don't want to do this, or I don't want to be like this, or maybe like even, you know, I I could have been another statistic that died by suicide, right? And I think that there is a lot around um, bereaved individuals, right? People who have lost people by suicide, and we're just like not getting to them with our interventions. And so I feel like now in my role, I can kind of look back. Everyone's journey is different. But for me, I can look back and say, well, this is a gap. Is it also a gap in the literature? Yes, it is. How can we address this problem? How old was your brother when he lost his life? He was 14. So in the eighth grade. 14. And and, and you were you were 10, 11? 10. 10. Now, there, there's a lot of folks who listen to the podcast who are runners your, your brother was a runner mm-hmm. and, and, and you kind of latched onto that energy, right? Can you tell me about y- your running journey? Because this was, this was a roller coaster for you. Yeah. So I was just getting into running at 10 before Jeffrey died. And that's because we would go, um, there was a track on the base, like Fort Meade. So we would go and run around the track with my mom and 
after he died, I didn't run for a really long time because I was just getting into it. He died. My life is in shambles. It's chaotic for like the next however many years. Um, and then in high school, I started running again. I did track for a really short period of time, but then I dropped out because I had to start working. But then I still continued to run. Um, but I was also smoking cigarettes, right? <laughs> like it didn't really work as a teenager. Um, so then I like stopped running for a while and I started getting into it again in undergrad around the time when I was like 23, right? So when I started, was I 23? It was whenever I started going to therapy regularly and like trying to work on myself and my mental health and really realizing that I needed to change things. So it- Well, let's look at it from this milestone. Were you out yet? I had just actually started coming out. Yeah. Like, so I. So 23. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I guess that was a really important year for me. <laughs> I like, I must have kind of blocked it out. You know how trauma works in interesting ways. But yeah. So it was like, I was in a, a serious relationship with um, a cisgender male. And I was like, I think I might actually be 100% gay and I need to figure this out. So he was great about it. We broke up. I was training for my first half marathon and the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Now I know that you're, you're active as an ambassador of, of still I run. Yes. You know, talk about that resource. You know, I was, I was, you know, spoiled to have Sasha Wolf on as one of the very first guests of the podcast. Oh what an incredible human She's being. Amazing. Yes. How long have you been involved with that group and what's it like connecting with people and, and helping them get the joy of running like you have? Sasha and Still I Run do such incredible work. Um, I always get the year wrong. I have to look at my medal. When was it? I think it was November 2019. I don't know where my medal is. I, I think Another milestone. <laughs> was it Was it four months before the pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. It was well before the pandemic. Okay. I found out about them when I was running the Richmond Marathon because I was I was trying to figure out a way like, you know, I'm doing all of this running. I really want to raise money for suicide prevention and mental health causes, but there I didn't really find anything. And so then I started Googling and then I stumbled upon Still I Run and I was like, oh my gosh, their mission is phenomenal. Like all of the things that they're doing just not for just combating the stigma, but for raising money for these great causes like suicide prevention, mental health advocacy. So I applied to be a Still I Run ambassador um, a little bit later, and then they accepted me and here I am. So so are you yeah. training for anything right now? Um, I am doing the run next month, which is I think the half marathon for mental health awareness through Still I Run. So there's still time to sign up. Um, but since I just started the PhD program, I'm yeah. like, I'm still running, but I'm like, I can't dedicate four plus hours of marathon yeah. training at this point. Well, but. that's cool. For, for you, <laughs> running has become, it's, it's, I almost just said it's utilitarian, but I mean, there is a certain amount of that, that it's like, it's like, it's, it's something that, that you got to do to sort of keep yourself on schedule and keep yourself happy. Right. Oh, absolutely. I 100% as as much as work, I've had so much work since starting this program, and it's been a big transition. As much work as I have, I'm still like, I need to fit in this time for running. And that is like, so critical, not just for my physical health, but my mental health. Like, that is what I realized at the age of 23. Like, running is life saving for me. Well, and you, you cycle a lot too, right? Uh, what, mm -hmm. Can you kind of differentiate between the uh, different things that those two activities give to you? <laughs> 
I mean, they're definitely both really great for my mental health. I think I get, you know, those squirts of endorphins and dopamine and everything from both of them. Um, I feel like running is a lot easier for me to just kind of zone out, you know, and I can take Sandy, my dog, on the trails with me. Biking feels like flying to me sometimes. I can't run as fast as I can bike, right? But when I'm going down those hills and it's just me and my music, it's just like this really amazing feeling of just like, I'm not stuck in my head, right? I I am happy and in this moment. What does your running resume look like? Have you done a, you've done a, a couple of marathons, right? I've done a, a few, I think it's, yeah, a few marathons and then maybe like six or seven half marathons. Um, so I'm not like, an amazing ultra marathon runner, but I think it's, you know, we all have our own running accomplishments. <laughs> how, how do we get to that place where we, we point out that running a marathon isn't, isn't as impressive as others? Oh like, my gosh. I know. I sound so, uh, I cringe at what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> I can we're always, see it. We're always comparing and that's not a good thing. And we need to be happy and comfortable with where we are because any achievement that we do is a great achievement. Agreed. So I didact what I said. <laughs> <laughs> redact that. I could take it out in post-production. Redact, yes. Redact. I, I could take it out in post-production, but I, I think that it really points out that no, we, none of us have it all together. No, we are all, it's that anxiety, right? I have anxiety. I have those negative self-deprecating thoughts that I'm constantly trying to rework around. So I think you should leave it in there because, yeah, I don't have all of my shit together <laughs> <laughs> perfect so wh- who do you want to work with in in terms of in terms of counseling and helping folks have, have you found your niche with the littles or like, like where do you see this going i really love working with adolescents so i feel like middle school to high school um, oh that sounds is, terrible i was gonna say uh, <laughs> i feel like a lot of people are like, what? Why do you like, what? They're so angry. Like, I mean, I was that kid, right? Like I was, I was a sweet kid, but I was also that kid that therapist wanted to kick out of their office and say, get out of here. I'm so. trying to do everything in my power <laughs> to keep my children from becoming adolescents. So, um, But I feel like, I mean, there's definitely good work to be done at the elementary school level because we need to do prevention work, um, teach them coping skills and everything like that. But I feel like when I look at the statistics of suicide, um, it's it's really ages 10 to 24 that have the highest rates of suicide in our adolescent population. So that's really, I feel like any intervention we do at that age is still going to help everybody, right? It's, it's universal prevention, but I just want to focus a little bit more on our youth that are at higher risk. Hey, jokes aside... I am so grateful for that answer because we need, we need you. No, no, no pressure or anything. We're all counting on you. <laughs> You're our only hope, but we, we need you or we need people in, in that role because yeah, as you, as you were alluding to before, I was super duper happy until like eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to a parochial school, so it was K through eighth grade. And it was like the moment I got into high school, it like the wheels came off the freaking bus and I, and I needed, you know, a Denise Williams to go to so that it wouldn't take me 20 years to figure out mm. what, what these feelings were, you know, what, what's going to be the key to getting that 13 or 14 year old into your office? I don't know. At this point, um, 
I mean, I did the clinical work, right? I was a therapist. And I think at this point in my career, I want to do research to figure that out, right? Like, how can we help these youth? How can we have more culturally relevant interventions, screenings, so that we can identify who needs help and might be going undetected and how can we best help them? So I'm I'm trying to figure that out. That's for the next four to five years <laughs> in my research, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, we all are. Like one of the things that was baffling to me is I, I work a bit with uh, with NAMI uh, here in mm-hmm. it's DeKalb, Kane and Kendall counties. It's a tri-county thing. And they have interventions and programs in Kendall and Kane County. But the DeKalb, uh, the, the DeKalb regional schools, um, they, 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 do, they don't they don't take advantage of this free programming mm-hmm. from NAMI to get to get into schools and talk to kids. So I think we're all trying to figure it out. Yes. I think that the place, though, where I'm excited about you being part of this enormous wave of talent is that once we do get them there, I mean, first impressions must must be everything, like making that immediate mm-hmm. connection and creating a safe space uh, where, where, where kids can say, okay, yeah, this is, this is, this is going to be helpful. This is going to hurt. This is going to hurt, but it can only help. And I think something I want to hopefully explore more, I mean, cause yeah, it's not all one person is going to fix this, right? It's a team. It's a collective science as we're constantly trying to make things better and learn new things. Um, but there's, I'm realizing in my short time here, there haven't been as many art-based interventions. And so I'm hoping Um, You know, for the kids that don't want to talk, like that's how I was, right? I don't want to talk, but you get me to draw and I will open up like that. So I'm hoping, you know, we are constantly trying to do better as a community. So we just all got to work together in this. So you're a big part of that too. Thank you for doing this podcast and having me on here and cheers combating the stigma well i i I love what you're saying we're coming back to one of our initial points is meeting children where they are Mm -hmm. not not trying to (laughs) i recently i i'm i'm back in the market for a therapist because my last counselor that i had she got to know me and then she handed me worksheets oh for basically the stuff I've been doing for a couple of years. Yeah. And I, I was, I was like, have you been here for the past like 10, 15, 20 minutes? Because like, this isn't like me sitting in the chair. I was like, I, I, this isn't my first rodeo. This, this, this isn't how we do this. Yeah. Sounds like you outgrew her. Yeah. Well, I only saw her twice. Oh, though you had a negative experience. I'm so sorry. And Oh, it's okay. It was such a roller coaster though, because the guy who I had had before her, I had three sessions with him, and this guy was different. I mean, he's a a sun dancer. Mm-hmm. He was very much into like alternative methods and modalities and stuff like that. And a lot of that stuff was it, it was it was stuff where it was like I never do that, but that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like I want to learn. It was so neat. And then he and then he left. Oh, no. and, <laughs> and I went to the very opposite spectrum. So I'm back in the market. I feel but. you. It is hard. I'm trying to find somebody now that, you know, I'm in a new area. It's hard to find somebody to connect with sometimes. I think COVID has made the wait lists 
even huger than they were before. Is huger a word? It is here. Um, it is here. And yeah. For me, there's definitely a dearth of like queer trans people of color therapists. There's a lot of barriers, but I'm glad that you are continuing to look because I think sometimes we get so frustrated by the the process of trying to find a therapist that it can be a barrier in of itself. Or we go the other way as as empaths and we continue to see the therapist who doesn't who doesn't work yeah, for us. Cuz we're trying to please them. Yeah. <laughs> we feel bad. <laughs> so I mean that that's you know that's a practical lesson I think for people listening is that you you got to love yourself enough to 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 find the therapist who clicks with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a good takeaway. You mentioned it that that there is that there is so very much space uh, in that profession for somebody who is doing what you're doing and is who you are. So I, I absolutely ad- adore you. Oh, thank you. I, it's been so cool getting to know you so briefly. Yeah, I feel the same. Thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity. I feel very, what's the word? I am honored. I feel honored. <laughs> oh, me too. It's a two-way street. It's a mutual admiration society. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. We'll get to class. All right. All right. Take care, Christopher. Thank you. You too. Bye, Denise. Bye. Oh my gosh. How cool was that? There were moments in that interview where I was like sweating and I was trembling because I was like, what words do I use? And you heard the stammering, right? (laughs) But then we came out on the other side and I was like, I want to know more. I want to grow more. And that's what happens when we simply ask the questions, when we explore the, the edges of our comfort zone and just beyond. So I'm so incredibly grateful to Denise Williams for joining the podcast. And as always, I'm so pumped to have you folks along on our journey. So if it feels like things are falling apart outside of this space, just remember in here, we are always coming together. I love you so much, folks, and we'll talk to you soon. Peace.